This podcast is made possible by listener support on Patreon. If you would like to support the podcast, please visit patreon.com slash Sam Reed's Near-Death Experiences. Why should I be frightened of dying? You know reason for it. You better go sometime. Hello. Welcome to the Sam Reed's Near-Death Experiences podcast. It's good to be back after a short break. Um, I had surgery in late August and um, was recovering for a little while, and everything went well, which I consider to be a miracle. Um, I got through it with the minimum necessary pain and discomfort, so I feel very blessed, and I'm in good health now. Um, And so thank you to everyone who wished me well through that. Um, It is good to be back. And uh, while I'm at it, I would also like to thank um, the listeners who have uh, chosen to support this podcast on Patreon. Um, As you could tell from the little intro um, that I added, um, I have a Patreon page, and, and that is a platform where listeners can support this podcast. Um, and so thank you to the listeners who have uh, thus far chosen to, to support me and, and what I'm doing. And uh, um, if you feel so inclined, uh, I would be eternally grateful um, if you uh, pledged your support on, on Patreon. There are two options at the moment, to uh, two different amounts that you can give, but I'll be putting some more up uh, here in the coming weeks. So I'll keep you updated on that. Um, so this near-death experience today comes from, um, a listener email. Um, one of y'all emailed in and, uh, shared this story with me and I thought it was, um, pretty interesting and in particular, in particular a certain symbol, um, which, uh, this woman, Alma, experienced during this, um, NDE, and uh, I will talk about that after the story itself, but um, she she describes God as a glistening eye, and I'd like to dive into that and kind of analyze it and, and see what we can, um, what, what insight we can gain from that. So, um, so a little bit about uh, this story. Uh, Alma is a woman who had, I guess, multiple diseases, multiple uh, injuries. She had a degenerative disc disease, and so that caused all these different issues. And then, as you will hear in the beginning of the story, she was hit by a taxi. And so, like, my heart breaks for this this woman. She She had all this stuff going on, and so she essentially wanted to die. She She starts off by saying she made a pact with God to um, for her to to die so she could get some peace and um that is uh, totally understandable based on on the way she describes what she was going through so um this occurred in 2012 so it's relatively recent and uh as usual this podcast not this podcast this story um comes from the near-death experience research foundation website which is nderf.org and I will post the link to it in the description of this episode. Um, so with that, I think we can go ahead and get started. Um, this is Alma's near-death experience. I made a pact with God to take me in a major heart attack. I had been suffering physically and emotionally most of my life. The suffering got worse after being struck by a hit-and-run taxi while on my bicycle in September 2003, which led to severe surgeries and illnesses for about nine years. I knew I was dying. At the start of the third month of weaning myself off of about 15 prescription drugs, I was in strong seizures. I arrived to the hospital on March 6th and had severe seizures after I was taking off of the feeding tube on March 7th. I had my profound near-death experience at about 2 a.m. on the late night of March 8th 
in the early morning of the 9th, 2012. I recall the seizure coming, and I prepared by wrapping my wrists and ankles with sheets so my body would not flail so much and frighten others. It was okay for me to die. I was tired of being so ill, and I knew I was to die. The seizure began as I finished the last wrapping of my ankles, and I went out. I am in a short void of what appears to be silver gray, very light gray. Then I see that I am standing on a ground that is not earth. I know I have just passed to the other side. I am raptured by the diamond-like ground with what looks to be quartz crystal, white marble, and even something that appears to be see-through glass. On the majority of the ground, there were protruding diamonds that stood tall, smooth, and glistened so much that I did not want to take my eyes away from this ground. Being the very curious person I had always been by nature, I looked up to see what else was there. To my left, I saw a huge crystal blue sky, a beautiful waterfall with some vibrant green grass around its edges. I saw a huge stone gate that led to what I believed was Heaven's Gate. I looked how far this gate extended, and it appeared to morph into forever. I then heard a voice talking to me. It was the sound of a boom of authority and a sweet loving kindness at the same time. It said, You are here because you have come to me often. I immediately knew all the prayers I had ever prayed had paid off. I had prayed constantly as a child, preteen, and teen of severe physical and emotional abuses, and at times depression. I was in a garden of heaven that was at the foot of the entry gate. My body was with a high fever this particular day and had been iced in the hospital several times to bring my fever down. In my near-death experience, I observed the gate to heaven and the narrow, golden, chiseled path that led to it. I saw the different ground under the path, which was not the large diamond-like ground I was standing in. I was picked up by an angel by the back of my body and taken to the waterfall. I was laid at the foot of the waterfall. The most minuscule touch of my little left finger touched the water that was not really water. It looked like gel with the diamond-like colors emanating from it. I felt my fever immediately leave my body. I was then picked up by this angel and brought back to where I had been standing. I saw my maternal grandmother to my right. She was with three other relatives that I recognize. To my left is my paternal grandmother and three relatives on my father's side who I recognize. My father seemed to want my attention and moved from the maternal side to the paternal side. Nobody was smiling, and I thought, I'm going to have a harsh judgment from God. I can take it. I am here in the garden, and I will take any judgment and accept all my sins as a choice I made when I could have done better. Maybe God will understand what I went through while alive. After greeting my relatives, and knowing I had serious work to do with being judged, I stood very straight and tall like a soldier. There was a huge orb of the glistening eye of God that was hovering in front of me. It was so large and filled with the light of diamonds and bright white. I said, I'm ready. I know I did bad things. You can judge me now. This huge orb of light the glistening eye of God, told me, Be still. It then told me to turn my head and look to my right. In a millisecond, my head was already looking to the right. I saw several blue human-like beings with auras of yellow coming out from their heads, shoulders, and bodies. Immediately, I thought that we had all passed away at the same time, and that I was holding up people in the line to be judged. After judgment, I would eventually enter that gate, and I wanted to enter it very much. 
I turned my head to the glisten of the eye and said, I am holding up the line. The glisten then poured an indescribable amount of its white diamond-like love onto me. The light was all love, only love, and pure love. It repeated, Be still, you belong to me. It then told me to turn to my left. I was then immediately looking to my left. I saw the same human-like beings of beautiful blue. There were rows and rows and hundreds of them. I again said to the glistening eye of God, I am holding up the line. The glistening eye of God said again, Be still. I was showered with more light from it, and it was all love, pure, pure love. I could feel my body was erect, tall, and not diseased like on earth. Again, the orb told me to look to my right. Again, I am looking to my right, and I hear from it, look closer. I then saw for the first time that these are humans I may have known, or some I had met. I was then told that I would meet some of these people in the front rows. I saw that they were all made of a sturdy membrane that outlined their entire bodies. The membrane glowed at the yellow aura, and the people were all water, like a bathtub filled with pure water. I gave a slight wave of acknowledgement that they were water as I answered in telepathy that I now understand who these water beings were. The orb seemed to be pleased, and then I said again, You can judge me now. Maybe you did not like when I said that I did bad things. I will change my wording to, I did wrong things. This huge glistening eye of God then showered me with more healing light, said more things to me, and repeated, Be still. I was not sure why I am not being judged. I wanted so much to walk through that gate ahead of me. I could hear the activity behind the huge gate to heaven. The glistening eye of God then showed me for a minute or two what was beyond the gate to heaven. They were beautiful souls, all talking about us on earth and how to help us. The first thing I witnessed was an oval table of light. These souls were talking about individuals because I heard comments like, She and he need. We have this in place for her and him. The next table was larger, and those souls talked in a way that I understood that they were helping groups. The third table of light had more souls around it, and they also spoke about groups, and I could sense strongly the seriousness at that table. All I wanted was to be able to start my walk into heaven and do whatever job was waiting for me. I had always said to God, I am so worthless, and if you let me into heaven, I will sweep the floors forever and ever. My attention was brought back to where I was still standing on the diamond-like ground. Even with all that I'd been shown, I still say to the glistening eye of God, I am taking up time, and some want to talk with you. I had heard some of the blue human beings in the right front row tell me that they could not hear what the large orb of light was saying. I look at my right and left, saw my relative smiling just a little. I believed that I would now be allowed in. At this moment I am filled with anticipation that the judgment must be good. When I started walking down that little golden path toward the gate of heaven, I heard by telepathy and eye contact when my relatives were saying to me, that I am doing fine. Suddenly, the huge white orb of the glistening eye of God dims and a huge golden yellow orb comes out from its right. I immediately sense that it is the light of Jesus. I am bathed in this golden yellow light and healed and healed and healed even more. I cannot speak. It tells me, I love you. Its rays touched my body, and I thought I would somehow be transported up those rays. 
they touched me, and then the golden yellow orb went back into the first huge white orb, the glistening eye of God. A stone ledge then came out of the sky, and a moving art drawing of my life is presented to me. Then another, and then another. I was having a life review. The drawings where I was moving in them were showing me that I was kind to people at different ages of my life. The first moving drawing was me, at about two years of age, chasing a butterfly that was teasing me to chase it. I was giggling and having fun playing with this butterfly. I had a pinafore edge dress on and I was in a park, running with the delight of being a little girl. I look at my maternal grandmother and paternal grandmother. They are smiling a little more now, and I feel I have been made as ready as possible. I feel both my grandmothers raise their arms to lightly guide me to start walking down the golden path. Everything goes into a void-like second, though I see silver-gray essence of some sort. I looked up and saw the bright, white, glistening eye of God once again. I watched it leave, like a balloon slowly drifting away into space. It tells me one last thing I hear audibly, like an everyday human talking. Continue to do what you have been doing. I believed it meant that I had been doing a good job of being a passed over soul. It disappears as I follow all its light. I see it as it leaves completely, and I am staring at the ceiling of my hospital room. I immediately felt two opposite human feelings at the very same time. I was fully aware that they were opposites, something I had not experienced before or had forgotten I had. These feelings were that of complete grief that I had been allowed into the garden of heaven and was in joy. It was a new joy that I had never felt in this lifetime. I knew I had just experienced something phenomenal and extraordinary. Following weeks were filled with my telling everyone I knew what had happened. I have not stopped talking about this near-death experience. It is my joy. It is my new life. It is my gift and the reason I want to live. Simply to share the story that we are so incredibly made and loved by the all there is, is love, God. Okay, so that was Alma's near-death experience. Um, each time I do one of these, I have to try to think about what I can talk about as far as what would be useful to explore. I mean, at a certain point, you can say, okay, well, this features you know, a tunnel and, and a being of light and stuff, and but it's it's kind of hard to say much beyond the actual content of whatever the near-death experience was. You could try to critique it from a scientific uh, kind of rationalist point of view of, oh, well, I don't know how trustworthy this author is due to these reasons or whatever. Or you can just kind of take them at their word. You know, there are a lot of different options now. And, you know, I understand that people get a lot of different things out of probably listening to these stories as i mean at least as far as what i've heard from people you know some get comfort from it if they're going through a hard time or helps them um think about whatever their religious belief is in a in a different sort of way um but you know what I'd like to try and do is is try to maybe explore something or, or or dive into something that maybe you you've never heard before or never thought before um, that might uh, allow us a, a new lens to to kind of look at these experiences and where I've been coming from lately is from the I as I've made clear in several podcasts before from the the lens of um, psychoanalysis and particularly uh, the Jungian um, uh, psychoanalysis. And what that has led me to do is is to 
view these experiences from a lens of of what certain symbols might mean in them. And what stood out to me in this near-death experience um, was the particular way that Alma um, experienced the image of God. Um, And if you recall from the story, she describes God as a glistening eye. Um, And that uh, piqued my interest because I thought, well, I can look at how Alma experienced this image of God as an eye and how it's been experienced throughout history in different cultures and different contexts. I mean, the the uh, anthropologist in me really uh, got excited by that prospect. Um, and so that's what I'd like to try to do with at least the remainder of this podcast um, or this episode. I kind of use those interchangeably if you haven't if you haven't noticed. Um, and the immediate place that um, I thought I'd start was the fact that in our recent um, uh, past couple episodes here, um, there was uh, one near-death experience that also got to see God as the image of an eye, and that was uh, Jeffrey's, I believe. Um, if you recall, Jeffrey was... Uh, had a hellish kind of near-death experience with a, a good, uh, solid kind of story arc to it where at the end he ends up being uh, forgiven and redeemed by um, Christ and he is allowed to see uh, an image of God. And so I'm going to go ahead and read that real quick just to refresh your memory and it can kind of uh, jumpstart our, our conversation of what the uh, eye of God might mean and, and why it's popped up in, in uh, many different religions and cultures and places. So, I was shown a vision of future events that have mostly come true. These were things no one could have predicted. As I entered the tunnel to return, I saw a vision of a circle with an eye in the middle. And as it turned, I could see scenes around it, like a clock of people and places, all moving at once. I realized that this was God. And I had been allowed by Him to see Him in the only way I could understand. It was a great comfort to be given that image, even though Jesus Himself said I could not see God. The feeling I had when I realized that Jesus was there with me all along I now had been given that feeling from God himself, and I went peacefully. Okay, so it's very very similar to um, Alma's well, image that she experienced of God as well. She described God more as an orb um, emanating light, um, but distinctly she mentions it like many, many times that it was a, an eye that she um, saw. And I guess I should point out a couple details which I found interesting from Alma's actual experience, um, which stood out to me. Um, one, one thing was that she kind of had a balance of, of relatives, um, of the two different grandmothers on her two, di- two different sides of her family on each side of her, and um, with her instructions from the eye and also with her family, there's kind of this emphasis on, on directions. Like she's, she's told to look left and look right and look left. And um, I don't know quite what that means. I think it, it might be some kind of, um, I don't know, uh, hinting at some kind of totality or completeness. Like she, she, supposed to take in the entire scene. Um, and one thing that, that pops up in dreams and, and also um, in visions and things like that is the, um, the totality of, of the image of God and that it, it's very... Well, one thing is that it often features quaternities, which she uh, has on both sides, four members, four family members, 
which she interacts with, and also um, the idea that uh, God is in all the cardinal directions, that to find God, one must go north, one must go east, one must go south, one must go west. To Once you make this circumambulation around the center, that you will um, I don't, attain some divine experience or something like that. So that's a little tangential, but I th- thought it was interesting. And the other um, thing that I wanted to talk about in relation to her story particularly was the um, what she talked about when she woke up from her experience or when she came back to her body. She mentions that she felt um, two complete opposite human emotions at the same time, and those being joy and grief. Uh, and I thought that was an interesting parallel um, to the, the previous uh, podcast episode I did on, on Jung's uh, thoughts about death. He talks about uh, when his mother died, he was on a train and he felt the deepest sadness and grief and loss. But at the same time, he, he heard singing and dancing and celebration um, somewhere inside him. Um, and he took that as, as you know, the um, contradictory na- nature of, of, of death, that it's a terrible loss for the people that lose someone, but a, almost like a wedding-like celebration of, of the person who gets to join with God. Um, and I just wanted to point that out because I don't know if you want to consider the uh, God talking about looking left and looking right and, and kind of these opposites which prop up uh, in dreams and visions and hallucinations and near-death experiences. But these are often some of the most, I don't know, profound uh, profound images, profound experiences when there's a bringing together of the opposites. And that's something that uh, Jung not only talks about a lot, but you can see in any um, uh, religion or, or um, you know, kind of spiritual practice, uh, like the Tao Te Ching or something, the, uh, the Tao. It's, it's all about bringing together of the opposites and the, the yin-yang, the, the cross. Um, you know, you could go on and on. And so that's something that, that we can look out for uh, in near-death experience stories as well. Okay, so in Alma's experience, she um, focuses on this image that she calls the glistening eye of God. I'm, I'm going to try to tie together several different uh, images of, of the eye of God. Um, some which will be positive, like in Alma's case, and some which will be more negative. Now, in Alma's case, she mentions that it's um, the eye of God didn't say a whole lot to her, but many times told her to be still um, and that you belong to me. And uh, she emphasized how each time she was told to look in a certain direction that the eye of God poured light and love onto her um, and healed her, um, even though she was... She was concerned, you know, probably being a good human being, concerned with time, but it didn't seem to be um, an issue for uh, the eye of God. It's, these near-death experiences are often described as, as being in a timeless kind of state, and it was kind of funny that, that she was worried about holding up the line um, for her judgment, and it, 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 this was what she was trying to do. She was trying to be judged so she could enter heaven, and she, I think, quite, um, quite admir- admirably, um, was very humble and, and you know, was willing to, she says, sweep the floors if they'll just let her in, which I thought was very, very penitent and very, um, very humble, and I found that impressive. Um, but I was doing a couple different uh, ways of exploring this, and especially from the positive angle, we can look at the eye of God as perhaps we're going to switch 
switch cultures here, but um, think of it in terms of the uh, the third eye, um, which is prominent in many of the Eastern religions. Um, let me pull it up here. So I'm just going to read a little bit of what I found. Um, in Hinduism, the third eye is said to be located around the middle of the forehead, slightly above the junction of the eyebrows. In Taoism and many traditional Chinese religious sects, such as Chan, called Zen in Japanese, third eye training involves focusing attention on the point between the eyebrows with the eyes closed and while the body is in various Qui-Gong postures. The goal of this training is to allow students to tune in to the correct vibration of the universe and gain a solid foundation on which to reach more advanced meditation levels. Taoism teaches that the third eye, also called the mind's eye, is situated between the two physical eyes and expands up to the middle of the forehead when opened. Taoism claims that the third eye is one of the main energy centers of the body located at the sixth chakra, forming a part of the main meridian, the line separating separating left and right hemispheres of the body. So that last bit I, I found as an interesting parallel. I don't really know if it's significant in any way, but the fact that this near-death experience emphasized a left-right, left-right kind of um, directionality in, in the orders from, from the glistening eye of God and that there is a, a slight correspondence here in um, at least the Taoist um, conception of, of this third eye, which helps one become enlightened and, and helps one to reach God. Um, that's not a, an exact parallel, but it is, um, I thought, something worth men- mentioning and um, perhaps a, a more traditional um, symbol that lines up with what um, Alma and Jeffrey experienced in a way, um, which I think I may have mentioned in Jeffrey's story. I may not have, but um, uh, is known as the Eye of Providence. And this, you will be familiar from uh, the U.S. $1 bill, um, the uh, pyramid with the eye on top, the triangle with an eye in the middle, Um I'll go ahead and read a little bit of what I found on that. Um, The eye of providence, or the all-seeing eye of God, is a symbol having its origin in Christian iconography, showing an eye often surrounded by rays of light or a glory, and usually enclosed by a triangle. It represents the eye of God watching over humanity, the concept of divine providence. Um, So, this again is a... um, a positive depiction of the eye of God watching over um, humanity, watching over us um, as we go about our our lives, trying to look out for us. And um, in fact, I found uh, another depiction of, of this um, eye of providence. And uh, let me read that real quick. Um, this was in a... Uh, in a village in western Ukraine, there was this uh, stone, and it had the symbol carved into it. And um, the inscription on the stone translated from an old Ukrainian di- dialect into English reads, All will pass, but God's eye does not pass you. So, again, this is a very uh, fatherly kind of or parental kind of gods watching over us, which you definitely um, see the the similarities with um, Jeff, both Jeffrey's and Alma's experiences of this image. Um, and th- this, there are many examples of this eye of providence. That was just one. Um, if you're interested in it, I I recommend you look it up because it's it's kind of fascinating to trace these symbols as they make their way um, through history and, and in different places. Now, um, just to add to this this idea of God watching over us and perhaps in a different cultural context, uh, let's flesh this out a little bit so it's not just the Judeo-Christian um, uh, image of God's eye, I was able to find a, um, a story of... Um, <clears throat> 
the Serrano people who uh, were um, uh, indigenous Americans who lived in California uh, around 2,000 years ago. Um, so I found this story of um, there was this landmark. Um, it was kind of a dome rock formation um, of, of white kind of uh, quartz, and they called it the Eye of God. So um, let me read a little bit about this. Uh, the Eye of God is a quartz dome, which is a landmark in the Baldwin Lake area of Big Bear City, California. It is a megalith, which is sac- a sacred tribal landmark for the Serrano people who lived in the region 2,000 years ago. The Serranos w- worshipped the dome, which they referred to as the eye of their creator, Kruktat. Uh, um, it is where the Serrano's creation narrative takes place. Uh, the Serrano Indians still hold the place sacred and believe God's spirit remains there. Legend says God was watching over to make sure the Indians treated one another well. Um, so let me give you a quick rundown of that story, uh, their creation story. It's pretty quick, but um, it just allows us to see this symbol emerging on its own um, in a completely different cultural context. Context, And that's something that I, I want to try to emphasize here is that... Um, Perhaps we have particular forms which um, humanity holds in common, and um, we can experience even we can experience some of those forms in near-death experiences. A little redundant there, but uh, I hope you get my point. So uh, let me read this this uh, creation story of the Serrano people. Their creation stories involve a god, Kruktat who created the people. After falling ill, Kruktat journeyed to the mountains where he lay dying in a bear cave. Tended by the first people, he was taken to Maksuk, today called Panhot Springs, where he was bathed by human caretakers. Knowing he was dying, Kruktat instructed the people to cremate him and protect his body from coyote, who eats dead things. Kruktat died near present-day Baldwin Lake. According to legend, during the cremation, the eye of Kruktat flew out and became the giant snow quartz megalith known as Apahunane, or God's Eye. Legend says that the unusually large white outcropping is God watching to make sure the people treat each other well. Um, so that was just something I found in my research that, you know, I found really interesting that it's kind of completely, a completely different um, uh, wellspring of this imagery that um, popped up and that we have account of. And and as far as another culturally separate uh, um, demonstration of this image um, in mythology, um, I found, uh, although I don't know a whole lot about it, uh, the the figure of Purusha in uh, Hinduism. Uh, he is the Hindu cosmic man. Um, and there's a little quote from the Rig Veda here that says, um, Thousand-headed is Purusha, thousand-eyed, thousand-footed. He encompasses the earth on every side and rules over the ten-finger space. Um and I had to look up to learn a little mo- little bit more about Purusha, um, and apparently he is a it's a very he represents a very complex concept um, that developed in the course of um, uh, uh, the religion of of Hinduism. Um, it says depending on the source and historical timeline, uh, Purusha means the cosmic man or self consciousness. And universal principle. Uh, in early Vedas, Purusha meant a cosmic man whose sacrifice by the gods created all life. Um, and that is an image that we will see in a different context where um, humanity is said to have been uh, created from the eye 
of one of the Egyptian deities, which we will uh, now transition into. Um, and this is where the other side of, of this image starts to uh, come through. Because you can think about it as, uh, I suppose, the, a simple way to, to talk about it would be you could see the eye of God as um, watching over you, protecting you, watching everything you do, making sure you're okay. Or a similar, but uh, <laughs> let's say uh, an oppositely uh, connotated uh, version of that would be um, the eye of God is watching you because he's pissed at you and he's angry at you and he has the eye of a predator who wants to destroy you. Um, this is where we can get into um, a discussion of the prominence of the evil eye um, and the belief in uh, a person's gaze as, as um, having some magical power to um, threaten you um, and, and some other conceptions of the actual eye of God uh, as, as being, you know, uh, terrible and, and wrathful. Um, so, uh, what might fall into this context would be the eye of Horus, although, um, it is also a symbol of protection and royal power and good health. This is the Egyptian god Horus, his, his eye. You've probably seen it before. It's a very distinctive image. Um, but along with the eye of Ra, which it has apparently some connections with. Um, it also has this kind of terrible uh, revenge kind of aspect to it. Um, let me pull up this this description. Uh, this is coming from uh, an author named Rundle Clark uh, in a book called Myth and Symbol in Ancient Egypt. The eye of the high god is the great goddess of the universe in her terrible aspect. Originally, it had been sent out into the primeval waters by God on an errand to bring back Shu and Tefnut to their father. Thus, the eye is the daughter of the high god. When it returned, it found that it had been supplanted in the great one's face by another, a surrogate eye, which we can interpret as the sun or moon. This was the primary cause for the wrath of the eye and the great turning point in the development of the universe, for the eye can never be fully or permanently appeased. The high god turned it into a rearing cobra, which he bound around his forehead to ward off his enemies. And uh, this is this has a couple different associations that I'd like to dive into um, uh, one I mentioned was the evil eye, um, which is, I was amazed to see how widespread a belief it was all through the Middle East, through Greece, through, uh, Italy, into the New World and Mexico and, and, uh, and South America. It was, it's, it's kind of amazing how, um, widespread this superstition is, but, um, in particular, what's what's kind of interesting is that you can one of the um, you know people tended to wear amulets or charms to ward off the evil eye, and often they featured an eye. It's kind of like the eye. Um, uh, you're protected by shooting the evil eye back at someone through this little amulet that has an eye drawn on it, um, and uh, this seems to be. Um, uh, echoed in this this last phrase that the eye of God was turned into a cobra to keep away his enemies. You also see this um, apparently in in the story, uh, or at least some of the amulets and and uh, artifacts derived from the story of Medusa. When Medusa's, you're all familiar with the Gorgon Medusa. She had hair for snakes, and this is in Greek mythology, and she. Um, was a monster, and if she looked at you, you would turn to stone. Um, 
which I've heard of as interpreted as the the predator um, prey kind of dynamic, as in when a when a uh, I don't know a lion looks at a antelope or a gazelle, the gazelle freezes. Um, that's one way I've heard it interpreted. But um, what I want where I wanted to go with that was that um, although you know Medusa's head was kind of terrible and gross, and uh, it was. When she was defeated, it was cut off and used to um, as a weapon against um, the hero's enemies. And similarly, uh, the Greek people would have uh, an image of Medusa in front of their, their doors and, and in front of their houses and stuff to ward off evil. Um, so that was an interesting parallel I found. Um, so there's a uh, there's another uh, text of of the Egyptian um, mythology that emphasizes how uh, powerful and terrible the eye of God can be. I'm just going to read a little bit of it. Um, o eldest God, in whom I myself came into being, and you, O ancient gods, behold mankind who came from my eye, have been scheming against me. Tell me what you would do about it. Then Nun said, O Ra, my son, O God, greater than he who made him, and mightier than they who created him, O you that now sit upon your throne, if your eye were turned against those who are plotting against you, how greatly would they fear you? Then the others who were about him said, Let your eye be sent out to seize those who are plotting evil against you. Let it descend upon them as Hathor. So the goddess came and slew mankind in the desert. Um, so again, you can see how this image of God as an eye is used in a wrathful kind of um, uh, terrible way, at least in the Egyptian context. But um, I wanted to read a little bit of uh, an interesting kind of discussion of of the eye of God as far as judgment goes. And I found this in, uh, in a book called The Creation of Consciousness by Edward Edinger. Um, he was an American Jungian psychologist, and um, he, he wrote a little bit about what the eye of God um, is often represented in the, how it is often represented in The Last Judgment. In this text, the eye of God is the agency of the last judgment. This theme is also a symbolic expression of the ego's experience of being an object of knowledge. In many religions, the judgment of the soul is projected into the afterlife and conceived as a post-mortem experience, in which the individual is finally subject to total scrutiny and is made the object of comprehensive knowledge of God. Depending on the outcome of this trial, he will either be acquitted and sent to paradise or condemned and sentenced to hell. So this is obviously something that we see quite clearly in Alma's case, um, that the eye of God is um, the mechanism by which she is judged. Um, But... Fortunately for Alma, and hopefully for all of us, it seems as though the image of God has gotten quite, uh, quite less angry in the uh, in the couple thousand years since um, these Egyptian texts were uh, talked about. But there's still a a kind of ambivalence of the image that the eye can be attributed to good or to evil. Um, for another example, we can go back to Hinduism and look at the three eyes of the god Shiva. Um, now, I'm not sure how the three eyes of Shiva relates to the idea of the mind's eye um, for an individual, but uh, this is coming from a book called Hindu Polytheism. This is by Al- Alain Danielou, um, and he writes... The three eyes of Shiva represent the sun, the moon, and fire, and the three sources of light that illumine the earth, the sphere of space, and the sky. The Puranas and the Upanishads speak of him whose eyes are sun, moon, and fire. 
Through his three eyes, Shiva can see the three forms of time, past, present, and future. The three eyes are said to shine like three suns. The frontal eye, the eye of fire, is the eye of higher perception. It looks mainly inward. When directed outward, it burns all that appears before it. It is from a glance of this third eye that Kama, the lord of lust, was burned to ashes and that the gods and all created beings are destroyed at each of the periodical destructions of the universe. So, again, we have, um, while the third eye in uh, a more general sense or in, in Taoism and the Chinese uh, conception of it leads to enlightenment, in this case, uh, it is associated with destruction and uh, renewal of the world in a way. Um, and another interesting association is that uh, Shiva's eyes are associated with planets. Um, and I found a uh, interesting parallel in a, uh, a book by Jung who was exploring this image. Um, and he compares uh, the seven eyes of God to the seven planets. Uh, the quote uh, coming from the Hebrew Bible, um, it comes from Zechariah. It's uh, Zechariah 3.9, and the quote in the Bible is, These are the seven eyes of the Lord that run to and fro through the whole earth. Um, and Jung continues, These seven eyes are evidently the seven planets which, like the sun and moon, are the eyes of God, never resting, ubiquitous, and all-seeing. Um, and the reason I wanted to mention that was... Um, due to Alma's view of the uh, the glistening eye of God as an orb, um, which uh, traditionally the, you know, the closest thing that <laughs> we get to seeing orbs in, in uh, our everyday lives are the planets, um, which back then, um, you know, they only knew of seven planets, in, including the the uh, they counted the sun and the moon, but um, it's fascinating to me that uh, we have two different lineages of of a religious thought: uh, the Hindu um, with Shiva, and here in the uh, the Christian and Jewish conception of of God, and we have associations with the the uh, um, eyes of God being um, planetary orbs, which. Again, Alma uh, seems to uh, experience. So, um, so a a good kind of summation of, of what I've been trying to illustrate. Although I'm sorry if it comes off a little haphazard and a little scattershot, but I'm trying to trying to gather these different images as they've uh, popped up across time and and space, essentially. Um, but I found a good kind of way of, of um, combining the two, the positive and the uh, negative aspects of the eye of God. Um, and this comes from the, uh, the alchemist in the uh, Middle Ages named uh, Jacob Bohm. And he said, Divine wisdom is the union wherein God eternally sees himself. He being that union himself... In the love, the light of God, that mirror is called the wisdom of God. But in wrath, it is called the all-seeing eye. So here we have kind of a combination of the two into a, uh, a totality, a, a whole, where um, divine wisdom is, is uh, l looking at God as God is looking at you. Um, but when... Uh, God is wrathful, that all-seeing eye is the eye of a, of a snake, of a predator that is trying to strike you down. Um, and just to wrap up in the, that negative side, which for some we tend to grapple with, I mean, especially what we get um, presented with us, or presented to us in, in many near-death experiences, this the idea of love and light and 
uh, the God that is unconditionally loving. And in fact, that you know comes up many times during this this story from Alma. But if we look back through um, our religious texts, we often see the the you know the I, <laughs> the image of the uh, angry Old Testament God who's going to flood the world and um, you know destroy mankind. Um, and so I found this passage in again in uh, the creation of consciousness by Edinger, um, which uh, lays it out in a different um, a different uh, Old Testament story, uh, the story of Job. If the archetypal image of the eye of God has been activated, it means that one is going through an ordeal analogous to that of Job. Jung states that Satan in the book of Job is presumably one of God's eyes, which goes to and fro in the earth and walk up and down in it. That's Job 1.7. Satan has been represented as a being with many eyes. There is a tarot deck which pictures the devil as Argus with the many eyes all over his body. The eye of God is thus usually experienced as the aspect of the self, which is the adversary of the ego. Um... And this, if this is something that you're interested in, um, one of the most incredible books I've ever read is Jung's Answer to Job, where he tries to understand um, how the image of God in the, uh, in the Judeo-Christian context uh, developed from a wrathful, angry, jealous God into the God of love. Uh, in the New Te- Testament, so from Old Testament to New Testament, how um, and he, you know, very explicitly talks about this not as the metaphysical being. Um, he he will not talk about metaphysics, but as the he's always very clear to emphasize that he's talking about an image of God in the psyche of man, um, as far as it was written down in these stories which is kind of the, the approach that I want to take here, because like I've said before, I can't speak for God. I can't, you know, these people like Alma who experience the divine, I, I would, you know, they have every right to talk about God. But as I have not had a near-death experience or, or seen an image of God uh, in a dream or fantasy or anything, then I cannot make claims about God. But what uh, Jung talks about in Answer to Job is how uh, really what it boils down to is should we fear God as we're told to do? You know, the, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of God, as, as the saying. Or should we love God as we're also told to do? And uh, Jung's answer is that you should do both that um, God has terrible, a terrible aspect that is wrathful and vengeful and, and, and um, uh, jealous and will destroy things, but also a loving, unconditional, beautiful light side as well. Um, and that our, our lives and our, our dreams and, and everything about us is, is in relation to those kind of two forces of God. And one really interesting thing that he talks about, which is, I'm pretty sure is conjecture, but since, you know, <laughs> since I'm kind of trying to feel my way in the dark here, I, I might as well bring it up, is that um, that Jung had the idea that an experience with an individual's experience of God changes the individual. And we can clearly see that from near-death experiences. People, uh, after they've had an, a near-death experience, they you know change their career, they uh, uh, aren't satisfied with their unhappy marriage, they change their friends, like their whole life changes from experiencing the divine. Um, now, Jung's thought was that, well, maybe an experience uh, between an individual and God might also change God. It might make the image of God more merciful. It might uh, make the image of God more conscious. Um, And, you know, that that might be why 
<laughs> now this is really far conjecture, so don't, you know, take this with a grain of salt. But if we have been changing God as God is changing us or the image of God within us as we have been over history, then perhaps that is why so many people who have near-death experiences tend to experience a God of unconditional love, of mercy. Um, There's still judgment, you know, there's still um, that aspect of it, but um, definitely what comes across is the loving God. Um, And, you know, that's kind of what you see as... as, um, is is supposed to be kind of the the takeaway message from that people bring back from near death experiences is that we need to love each other unconditionally, um, and we need to uh, love is is the most important thing, and I agree with that. Although I do think it can, if you are only focusing on love, you can tend to not uh, be conscious of the evils within the world and also within you. So I think there's kind of a caveat there. Um, And I know this has kind of been a long explanation of of why I I wanted to dive into this particular image, but I thought it was was pretty rich as far as the history and the the symbolism um, and the kind of, well, it's dual nature of the light and dark side of the eye of God. And it's, it was particularly relevant for me um, uh, here, I don't know, probably about three weeks ago. Um, I, I had, uh, well, I've, I've had two rather frightening dreams. Um, and I'm trying to take my dreams seriously as, as an experience um, that may have something meaningful for me uh, within them. And so I I woke up from these these two frightening dreams and um, I was awake. But when I shut my eyes, uh, I saw images. Um, and the one that kind of stood out to me the most, although both had the same effect, was um, there was an oval kind of shape in the shape of an eye, and then a bunch of small spirals all around it. Um, and the reason I bring that up is because it relates to this. And I had the distinct feeling of being watched from inside my own head. Um, I know you've probably all had that feeling before of, oh, somebody's watching me or something. But what was very strange about it was it was looking at this image um, when I shut my eyes. It felt like it was watching me and I don't know what exactly it was supposed to represent or, you know, what it's from or any of that. But what I took away from it was I am, you know, not the only one in my head perhaps that um, the psyche might have these uh, forces and complexes within it that have a life of their own in a way, which at its very deepest um, perhaps coincides with the image of God. And I don't have any more more than that, but it's definitely a weird feeling. You know, uh, it was Nietzsche who said, when you stare into the abyss, the abyss stares back, which it was definitely that kind of feeling. So, um, so that was, that's all I've got on that. Um, I hope you found it interesting, enlightening, maybe made you think of some things that, um, uh, perhaps aren't talked about very often, but um, I'd like to try to do a similar analysis with other near-death experiences um, if they have a particular image or a particular um, situation that has parallels in mythology or, or other religious stories. I'd like to kind of explore those to try and flesh out um, and to try and understand where where near-death experiences fit into um the human story, you know, um, because I think they are as deep and as meaningful as any human experience could be. Um, and I think we need to learn from them. 
um, as much as we can learn from something like the Bible. Um, so, um, thank you so much for listening. Um, if you would like to uh, email me, reach me, you can shoot me a message on uh, the Sam Reed's Near-Death Experiences Facebook page, or you can uh, shoot me an email at samreedsneardeathexperiences at gmail.com. Uh, if you feel so inclined, please uh, I'll leave a review on the iTunes uh, uh, podcast app or whatever podcast app you use because that helps uh, the visibility of the podcast and helps more people be able to to see it. Um, and if you'd like to follow me along in my daily, everyday life, then uh, you can follow me on Instagram. Um, and my name is The Timberlion. Um, so now we will close uh, with a quote. It's not really on death, but it is very uh, pertinent to our discussion today. And this, this comes from the, uh, the Christian mystic, uh, Meister Eckhart. Um, I'm not sure when he was alive. I think it was like either 16th or 17th century. Um, but I felt like this kind of sums up this, this relationship and, and the idea of looking at God as God is looking at you and that, that you're part of God and, and it's, it's something that I, I feel like has a, a great, deep wellspring of meaning. And uh, that is kind of what I got from this quote. It must be understood that this is all the same thing. Knowing God and being known by God. And seeing God and being seen by God. We know God and see Him because He makes us know and see. Even as the luminous air is not distinguishable from its luminant, for it is luminous with what illuminates it, so do we know by being known, by his making us conscious.